This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this is the first episode of season six. As always, I appreciate you bearing with me during my off-season. I hope you enjoyed my two-part special focusing on the life and crimes of Dennis Nilsson, as well as my guest episodes with Lorraine Purden of American Murder Stories and author Claire McGowan. It's back to business this week, but before we get into it, let's break the ice a little bit as we always do here on British Murders. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. This week's Dad Fact is... When barbecuing meat, be sure to use two sets of tongs, one to handle uncooked meat and one to serve cooked meat. Very good tip. Don't want to cross-contaminate. Gordon Ramsay would not be happy if you did that. He wouldn't want his food served raw. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. Satsuji Haiku Here is this week's haiku. It's unthinkable. Parents should protect their kids, not bloody kill them. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5. It's also meant to be read in one breath. Please feel free to send me your own murderous haikus and I will read them out on a future episode. With my intro icebreakers complete, let's get into this week's episode. This week's case was suggested by listener Emma Shaw via Facebook Messenger in August 2021. I did actually forget to add this case to my spreadsheet at first, but Emma chased me up, got back in touch, and I swiftly added it to season six. Sorry about that, Emma. We're back in the Wirral this week, so we're starting season six in the same place we ended season five. Specifically, we're in the seaside town of New Brighton, which is in Wallasey. Not to be confused with the seaside resort of Brighton, located 300 miles further south in East Sussex. Here are your five quickfire facts about New Brighton. Number one, it has the longest promenade in the UK at just a touch over two miles long. That's 3.2 kilometers. Number two, the New Brighton Tower was the tallest observation tower in England when it was opened in 1900. It only remained open for 19 years though and was finally dismantled in 1921 after closing its doors two years earlier in 1919. It was closed due to a lack of maintenance during World War I. Number three, New Brighton was the subject of Martin Parr's famous photographic book, The Last Resort, Photographs of New Brighton, 
which was published in 1986. So famous I've never heard of it. Number four, writer Malcolm Lowry was born in New Brighton. His most well-known book was 1947's Under the Volcano, which was voted number 11 in the Modern Library 100 Best Novels list. Again, I've never heard of it. Number five, finally, Fort Perch Rock, which is located at the mouth of Liverpool Bay, is a Grade 2 listed former coastal fort that was built in 1825. It's now a museum and a music venue. The 2011 census data indicates a population of 14,859 in New Brighton, and as you may have gathered from my haiku earlier, this episode does contain discussions of filicide, the deliberate act of a parent killing their own children. Listener discretion, as always, is advised. A quick word of warning, some of the minutiae of this case varies from source to source. It's worth remembering as well that these events did take place over 125 years ago. Our story this week takes part in the late 19th century, and our solo villain was a man in his 60th year of life. His name was Felix Spicer. Born in 1830, Felix Spicer was referred to as a seafaring man. I don't know about you, but whenever I saw that word during my research, I kept picturing Quint from Jaws. In reality, the only picture I could find of Felix, which is the cover art for this episode, is just like a crudely hand-drawn one. I'm assuming it was created during the court case back then. He sported a full, thick beard and appeared to have a receding hairline. Felix had moved to New Brighton in around 1865 and occasionally disappeared for months at a time on sea journeys on board various vessels. One source said that Felix acted as a ship's cook during those voyages, but another source had him down as being a rigger, which is someone who takes care of a ship and its rigging whilst in port. Perhaps he was both, and probably did different tasks on different ships on different trips, I would have thought. He lived at number 18 Richmond Street, which branched off from Virginia Road at the top and Victoria Road at the bottom. In current times, the street has terraced houses on both sides, but Google Street View, sadly, doesn't go back as far as the late 1800s. Google Images, though, did bring up a historical photo from the area. It looks like there were a lot of shops on the street back in those days, as well as a hotel right at the bottom at the end called The Richmond. You can see the sea from the top of Richmond Street, so it's no surprise that a Thalossophile of Felix as ilk chose to live there. What a mouthful. Thalossophile. Big word. Opposite is Thalossophobia, a fear of the sea or the deep ocean. Living with Felix was his much younger wife Mary, who was 32. She'd been Felix's partner for 16 years, since roughly 1874, after falling pregnant at the age of 16. The couple were not married, yet Mary did publicly go by Mary Spicer, rather than her official name of Mary Palin. She did that to avoid shame, to quote one article I read. Please remember this story took place in a very different time. In total, Felix and Mary had seven children, but one of them died prior to the events of this week's story. The names of the six living children proved to be an extremely difficult thing to confirm. One source confirmed the children's names as William, Gertrude, Annie, Ethel, Harry and Thomas, but another went on record saying the kids were called Felix Jr., William, Henry, Thomas, or Tommy, Dolly, and the other girl was unnamed. 
Harry is actually a nickname for boys named Henry in the UK. So Henry and Harry is probably the same person in both of those sources. My granddad actually goes by Harry, even though I'm pretty sure his true name is Henry. My mum and dad might be able to confirm that for me. The key takeaway from this is that the Spicers had six living children, five of whom live with them at 18 Richmond Street. Their ages ranged from 12 months to around 14. The eldest child, whom I believe was Felix Jr., was said to be 17 years old and lived away from home at Hoy Lake, where he worked. Hoy Lake is about 8 or 9 miles west and slightly south of New Brighton. In early 1889, most likely in January, Felix set off on a nine-month-long trip on board a trading vessel headed for China. Upon his arrival back on dry land in September 1889, Felix struggled to find any further work, and the entire family was left to be supported by the sole earnings of Mary. As you can imagine, that caused Mary to resent Felix, and numerous arguments occurred as a result. Felix had also promised to marry Mary when he returned, but he failed to keep that promise. The couple ran a restaurant, or rather Mary ran the restaurant, and Felix simply wanted his name on the license. To be fair to her, Mary was having none of it, and refused to add Felix's name to the license. I'd have done the exact same thing, I reckon. I can't confirm 100% the name of the restaurant Mary ran, but I believe it may have been called the Bon Marche Café, Bon Marche, Bon Marche, I don't know, located at the end of Victoria Road. Whatever it was called, it was only 600 or so yards away from the house on Richmond Street, so it was a very short commute to work for Mary. In the weeks leading up to the true beginning of this week's timeline, Felix and Mary's arguments were getting more and more heated by the day. It got so bad that Mary decided she'd had enough of Felix and would be sleeping at the restaurant rather than at the house until further notice. Seeing as a restaurant isn't exactly the most ideal place for someone to live, never mind five children, the kids stayed at the house on Richmond Street with Felix. Despite his regular arguments with their mother and his supposed proclivity towards drinking alcohol, Felix had a good relationship with his children. That last part is worth remembering and perhaps taking with a pinch of salt as the story progresses. Let me now tell you a little bit about the house on Richmond Street. The Spicers paid £18 a year, sorry, Mary paid £18 a year in rental fees. That equates to roughly £2,400 in 2022. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere to rent in the UK at £200 a month nowadays, believe me. The house was made up of four bedrooms, a kitchen, a parlour or living room and a back kitchen. Given its size, some of the rooms were let out to lodgers once Mary started sleeping at the restaurant. One of the two lodgers, Mr Alfred Short, lived in the front room of the house. He knew Felix through work after securing him a job as an advertising placard framer. The second lodger was unnamed and had only moved into the house on Friday, May 23rd, 1890, the day before the events of our story. That brings us nicely to Saturday, May 24th, 1890. Felix spent most of the day penning two letters. They were addressed to his nephew in the neighbouring city of Liverpool and, of course, to Mary. The details of what Felix wrote to his nephew are not known but the letter meant for Mary would later provide an insight into the pair's tumultuous relationship. Addressing the letter as Dear Polly, presumably an affectionate nickname he had for Mary, Felix opened up about the fact their relationship was coming to an end. 
This was not what Felix wanted to happen, and he implored Mary to forgive him for leaving her alone to take care of the entire household during that nine-month-long journey to China and back on board the trading vessel. He begged her to take him back, but failing that, he at least wanted to remain friends with his beloved Mary. He wrote that if Mary would not forgive him, his heart would split in half, and he feared he would not be able to live in this world without her. By the time evening came round, Felix was in his kitchen, growing ever more frustrated due to a lady named Mrs. Annie Fraser having not arrived yet. Annie was, I suppose, kind of like a babysitter or nurse. It was her responsibility to get the kids ready for bed. Once the kids were put to bed, Annie went to bed herself in one of the empty bedrooms. She'd been sent there that evening by Mary once her shift had finished at the restaurant. At 10pm, Alfred Short, one of the lodgers, returned to the house after leaving four hours earlier to pay some of his bills. The two men had a discussion that lasted just over an hour, with Alfred recalling them bidding each other a good night at 11.10pm. The conversation appears to have been less of a mutual thing and more of a Felix complaining to Alfred kind of thing, with the main topic being Mary's attitude. Felix also expressed his dismay at not being able to fix the relationship. A crucial thing to note here is that Alfred said Felix was completely sober, which was, if anything, out of character for him. He didn't appear frantic or anxious, rather he appeared to be his usual self. Alfred recalls hearing nothing throughout that night, so he had no idea of the tragedy that had occurred upstairs when he awoke the next day. Annie Fraser later recalled hearing a faint cry from one of the younger children during the night, but it stopped almost as soon as it had started, so she didn't see the need to get up and check on whoever was making the noise. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Unbeknownst to both Alfred and Annie, when Felix had retired upstairs that evening, he didn't go straight to sleep. The precise timings are unclear, but at some point during the very early hours of Sunday, May 25th, 1890, Felix quietly entered one of the upstairs bedrooms. Naturally, some of the kids shared rooms, and sleeping soundly within the one he entered were William and Henry. William was aged between 12 and 14, whereas Henry was much younger. He was either three or four. In an act of complete and utter cruelty, the likes of which I can't even begin to wrap my head around, Felix slit the throats of both boys using a knife he'd presumably sourced from the kitchen. William and Henry bled out quickly as the cuts were long and deep and apparently from ear to ear. William's body was spread out at the foot of the bed, with his hands firmly gripped onto the iron railing. It's thought he was likely attempting to either escape or defend himself. That, to me, indicates that young Henry was probably killed first, which then awoke William. Henry's body was at the top of the bed, which also adds to the likelihood that he was killed first whilst sleeping. The volume of blood was such that the bed and its sheets were completely saturated with it, to the point where the bedroom looked more like an abattoir. 
Felix then left the house without even changing his clothes and headed down the street for Mary's restaurant. At 3.30am, Mary was awoken by the sound of smashing glass. Felix was destroying each and every window of Mary's restaurant before turning his attention to her. Upon realising what was happening, Mary got up and was greeted by the sight of her blood-covered partner slash ex-partner standing in front of her holding a knife and a piece of wood that he'd fashioned into kind of a bizarre-looking battering-ram baseball bat hybrid. Mary was agile enough to swerve Felix's knife-wielding arm swings and escaped into the street out of one of the broken windows. It goes without saying that if Felix hadn't broken any of the windows prior to finding Mary, she wouldn't have lived to tell the tale. Once in the street, Mary tried to run away, but was soon pounced on by the much larger and quicker Felix. Now on top of her, Felix violently slashed at her repeatedly with the knife he'd already used to kill two of their children. Several neighbours were also awoken by the sound of glass smashing, including local greengrocer Mr Bailey, first name not known. Mr Bailey's shop was located a few yards down the road from the restaurant, and he opened his door in an attempt to offer Mary some refuge so she could escape Felix's brutal attack. The details of how Mary managed to escape are not readily available, but escape she did, despite her massive blood loss. Her nose was said to have been barely hanging on due to Felix essentially slicing it fully off with the knife. Once safe inside Mr Bailey's shop, the police were able to be summoned and they arrived on the scene shortly after. Felix didn't stick around though, he made his way back up the street to the house. After entering via the back door, Felix took a seat at the kitchen table and remained there until the police arrived. It's a miracle that he didn't go back upstairs and kill the rest of his children, but thankfully no one else got hurt that night. The three other children were upstairs in a room adjacent to the crime scene and slept soundly through the night. They were still asleep when their father was sitting in the back kitchen after murdering their two brothers and attempting to kill their mother. The two police officers that arrived at the scene where Felix had attacked Mary were PC Jones and PC Potts. Mr Storey, another neighbour and shop proprietor, explained to the officers what had happened and where he believed Felix had disappeared to. Like the other neighbours, Mr Storey was also awoken by the commotion in the street and claimed to have heard people yelling murder and police during the attack. Accompanying the two officers to Richmond Street, Mr Storey walked through the front door with PC Potts, whilst PC Jones entered via the back entrance. I couldn't bring myself to say he entered via the back door, even though I've just said it then. It made me laugh while writing it. Wondering what on earth was going on, a confused Alfred Short greeted the two men in the front of the house and asked what all the commotion was. Meanwhile, PC Jones had identified himself to Felix in the back kitchen and the pair walked through to the front room where the others were. Felix asked them what the matter was, to which PC Jones replied he was going to be taken to the local police station to be charged and questioned about the attack on Mary. As PC Jones led Felix out of the house, PC Potts made his way upstairs to conduct a brief house search. What welcomed him was a sight I'm sure he never forgot. After returning to the lower level of the house and explaining to Mr Storey what he had just seen, the two men yelled out after PC Jones to inform him that two children were dead and that they believed it to be a double murder committed by Felix. 
Felix was immediately restrained by PC Jones and charged with the double murder of his two children, as well as the attempted murder of his partner, Mary. I don't think handcuffs were used back in 1890, certainly not as we know them now anyway. I did a tiny bit of research, but it looked like a huge rabbit hole that I simply didn't have time to explore. If anyone listening knows what a police officer would have used in the UK in 1890 to restrain criminals, please let me know. If you're wondering what was happening to poor Mary during Felix's arrest, she was taken to the Cottage Hospital in Seacombe, Wallasey, with severe cuts to her hands as well as the nose injury I touched upon earlier. By the sounds of it, Mary put up one hell of a fight as the cuts to her hands were surely defensive wounds. Luckily, her condition wasn't life-threatening and she went on to make a full recovery. With Felix Spicer now in custody, a more thorough search of the house at Richmond Street could be conducted. Along with the two letters Felix penned a day prior, Police Sergeant Cooper found a knife that he believed may have been the murder weapon. A later search of the restaurant would lead to the discovery of another knife hidden behind an oven. It makes more sense that Felix would have attempted to hide the murder weapon rather than leave it in his house, but seeing as though he attacked Mary with a knife and then went straight home, perhaps the knife found at the restaurant was not related to the attacks. Blood was found on Felix's clothes, as well as on the makeshift weapon he had fashioned from a piece of wood. The significance of finding blood on the wooden weapon was that it proved Felix had murdered William and Henry before attempting to murder Mary, rather than killing them after the attack, once he had returned home. Felix's first court appearance took place on May 26, 1890, at Wallace Magistrates, or Wirral Magistrates Court as it is now known. He was formally charged with the murder of William and Henry Spicer and the attempted murder of Mary Spicer. Felix pleaded not guilty to all three charges, remained calm in the dock and offered no defence for his actions. He was remanded in prison until his trial began at Chester Assizes, now Chester Crown Court, on July 21st, 1890. During the trial, one of Felix and Mary's neighbours testified that she had once heard Felix shouting, I will show them who is master, while sharpening a knife by the windowsill. Felix's defence team tried to pin the murders on the second unnamed lodger, the one who had moved in the day before they took place. It seems as if Felix moved him in purely to use him as a scapegoat, which only further proves premeditation, if you ask me. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury retired for all of five minutes before returning with their verdicts. They found Felix Spicer guilty on all three charges, and as a result, the sentencing judge advised he was to be hanged by the neck until dead. Those last two words, until dead, are crucial when handing out a death sentence, especially by way of hanging. There must have been one or two cases where the hanging was botched and the prisoner got out of the death sentence via such a loophole as the sentencing judge not saying those two crucial words, until dead. August 22nd, 1890 was set as Felix Spicer's execution date. Absolutely no messing about in those days. How bizarre too that this episode is being published on May 26th, 2022, a day removed from the 132nd anniversary of the murders. I honestly didn't plan that. I'm not smart enough to have that much forethought. The reason August 22nd was set was that in those days, you had to allow three Sundays to pass from the time the sentence was handed down to the execution date. Legendary British hangman James Berry was called upon to act as the executioner. During his seven-year tenure, 
Berry carried out 131 hangings, including those of five women. Felix declined breakfast on the morning of his execution, but spent around an hour with prison chaplain Reverend Truss before being led to the gallows. Allegedly, Felix attempted to take his own life, as well as that of his prison guard, but both attempts were averted. He was asked if he had any last words before the hood was placed over his head. He screamed, I am dying. If I perpetrated the crime upon my two dear children, I must have been mad. Oh Lord, have mercy upon me. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear indeed. Oh dear, oh dear. Hangman Berry drew the bolt and Felix fell to his death. He was given a drop of five feet two inches by Berry, who would go on to say that it was the best execution he had ever performed. I assume by that he meant the swiftest and most effective, as he had a history with a few bungled ones in the past, especially that of John Babacombe Lee, who, after three failed hanging attempts in February 1885, had his death sentence commuted to life imprisonment. They called him the man who could not be hanged. The burial service for William and Henry was held at Wallace's Cemetery and was conducted by Reverend John H. Gwyther, who was the pastor of the Congregational Church. And that was the story of British murderer Felix Spicer. Thanks again to Emma Shaw for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear what you all think of it, as always. I've got three new reviews to read out this week. Thank you, firstly, Apple Podcast user Jarquis B. Believing British Murders, a five-star rating and review. They said, Love this podcast. Keeps me company while I'm gardening in sunny Northern California. Love to hear the English accent. So concise. And the dry sense of humour Stuart has, which was so lost on that American reviewer. <laughs> Plenty of facts, but brief and to the point. Love it. Thank you, Apple Podcast user Luli2000 for leaving British Murders, a five-star rating and review. They said... A great podcast with interesting stories that I've not heard about before. Can't wait for the future episodes. And finally, thank you, Catrice Hackford, for recommending British Murders on Facebook. Catrice said, Stumbled across this podcast a few weeks ago and now can't stop listening to it while I'm doing everything. It's great to have on, and his voice is calming, and he makes his episodes factual and interesting. Can't get enough of it. Keep up the good work. Thanks again, Jarquis B, Luli2000 and Catrice. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify and voicemail messages at BritishMurders.com. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each of those at BritishMurders.com. Thank you to the anonymous listener who recently bought me a beer via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. They said, enjoying binge listening the podcast with a big smiley face. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or just message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered as Emma did today, but you'll also get a cheeky shout out. That's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. 
Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.